Well, good morning. good morning. All right, there's just a couple of us. Um, I've got some monitor things that are about ready to go deep. All right, hey, I'm back, and I'm just making sure I could hear as well as you. Um, it is great to see you. I know that your eyes are a little bloodshot, but that's okay. Your hair is a little messed up, but that's okay. You're here. Um, and um, this morning, my daughter, Lindsay, is at a volleyball tournament, so Amy's there with them. This morning, someone called in. Multiple people called and said, I'm sick, I'm sick, and, and other people are traveling, and so we've got about this message. Really excited once I um, preached through it this morning, and, and just if, if you can digest, okay, this is how I'll know if God worked through me. If you can digest a little bit about what Peter is talking about, and you get the gist of this idea, and, and you say, wow, because of that, I get to do this this week, you will have... Um, uh, you will have gotten a hold of the passage. In about 1820s, they, the field of astronomy really changed, and, and they started to be able to create lenses that were larger and larger, and they were able to look out into the space farther and farther. And a significant thing was they developed the lenses that were close to 40 inches in diameter, and for the first time, they were able to take a picture of the moon with a, a telescope. And then in 1846, they discovered Neptune. And so the 1820s and 1800s are really known as the great era of refractors. Refractors, I'm sorry. Refractors. And, and, and so they, they continue to look farther and farther into space. They were able to find planets, and they were able to tell the difference from light years. They were starting to measure time. But, but soon, towards the end of the 1800s, they ran into a problem. Seems like these great big lenses made out of glass they started to give way to gravity, and which was once clear and, and crystal clear, started to get more and more out of focus, and refractors, great refractors, yeah, the great refractors, started to get more and more useless. And towards the end of the 1800s, around 1900, they had to stop using them because of gravity ruined the lenses, and the lenses were hard to make. And I think that that is a truism for us sometimes in our spiritual life. We start out crystal clear. Things are, things are really in focus, but over the course of time, barely noticeable to us, barely noticeable by others, but more and more as time goes on, what was once clear becomes a little more blurry, a little more blurry, and I'm not talking about our personal eyeballs, I'm talking about our spiritual eyes. What we once could see clearly, now we see dimly because pressures in life and, and struggles challenge us and challenge us and they press us and they push us, and pretty soon we become average, ordinary, normal believers in a culture that needs extraordinary, abnormal, and extraordinary believers. So we're going to want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing this passage, and you're going to see in a second who he's writing to. But let me just read a couple of verses. We're only going to park it on verse 9 and 10. In your handouts there, you have the passage there. I'm going to have it up here on the screen. And feel free to mark it up. Feel free to write it up. I, I hope you bring your Bibles. I'd love for you to just start marking those up. I have an old red leather Bible, and in it I um, have demons and just underlining my Bible. And so it would be good to always bring your Bible, bring your electronic device, do something, have God's Word with you. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Let's end the passage in Peter there, and let's talk. Last week, I left it off Peter saying these words at the very beginning of verse 9, but you, but you. Peter went through some significant challenges. In verse chapter 1, verse 2, he says they were scattered. In other words, kind of like something came on and they had to scatter. And so he's writing to five different clusters of churches in the area we would call modern-day Turkey, up towards the, the, dark, the Black Sea up there and out towards the Mediterranean and all around a giant area. He's writing to these clusters of churches, and so he's giving them advice because they're about ready to suffer or they are suffering in verse 7. You're going to suffer for doing good, 220 Suffer for doing right, 314. It is better to suffer for doing right, 317. Suffer, the, um, suffer purifies the body, in 4.1. The test you in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And by the way, the devil is always looking for someone to devour, in chapter 5, verse 18. They're suffering, but why are they suffering? Here's the cluster of people that were the churches that they're at. And the bottom is kind of the um, Mediterranean Sea. There's Syria, and, and the top is the Black Sea, and, and they're spread out throughout all of that Turkey area. But why are they suffering? They're suffering for multiple reasons. A lot of it has to do with the cultural influence that is there. One of them happens to be their equivalent to 9-11. Their equivalent to 9-11 was, happened in Rome, not in Turkey, but happened in Rome. Rome burnt down for three solid days, blue and it blew. And there's rumors that... Nero then told the fire department to stop putting out the fires. There were rumors that the fire department just didn't want to put out the fires, and so the Rome continued to burn for another three days. And Nero, looking for a scapegoat, Nero, looking for someone to blame it on, he looked around, he goes, what's the outside group? Who are the odd people? And he blamed it on Christians. He blamed it on the Christians because they thought Christians were a cult, because Christians said, oh, you've got to drink the blood of your Savior. Oh, you've got to eat the body of your Lord. Oh, oh, this is what you do. They're just a a horrible cult. And so Nero started persecutions of Christians, pushing them. And imagine, that's only just a couple of years before, a couple of years happened, and then this letter to churches. They're not in Italy, they're not in Rome, but they're in a territory covered by Rome. So imagine what your non-Christian neighbors think of you. You're an odd guy. You believe that you need to drink the blood of your Lord. You believe that you need to eat the flesh of your God. You're an odd guy. I'll go worship the, the stone. I'll go worship the piece of wood more than I will worship your God. Not only that, but so they've got the social pressure that says you're an odd group of people. Social pressure is, is that, you know, diseases run rampant. Probably 75 years after Peter writes this letter, there's a plague that comes over the area. So if you're sick, I hear some coughing back there. If you're sick, you would be ostracized because they're 75 years after Peter writes this letter, um, a plague runs rampant throughout that area. They estimate over 5 million people died. They estimate that one-third of the population in that area passed away. And you, 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 are, you might be the cause of that. And so you've got the pressure, you've got the effect that, that sickness and health is not something that you can quickly go to the doctor to get rid of. Not only that, but how they treated families and and the values of infants was just abysmal. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But needless to say, things were bad. And the Christian church is is alive. They're scattered. They're a long way from, from, if you will, Jerusalem. They're long They They don't have collections of Paul's writings. They don't have a collection of Peter's writings. They just get that. 
And with these words, they're supposed to be encouraged. They're going to go through some hard times. And in these difficult times, in these difficult times, it's hard to trust Christ. And so Peter is challenging these people. And he wants them to digest this truth, that they are unique, special people. And he says, but you. Look at, we're going to look at four different clauses that he says. He's writing to this group of churches. It, it gets better in a second. But you are, are a chosen people. You're not an accident. You are a chosen people. And uh, what happens here is, is Peter uses that phrase, chosen multiple. He says, to God's elect, to God's chosen. To those who have been chosen, in verse 2, through God's foreknowledge, the prophets proclaimed it. The Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. Jesus is precious stone that was chosen and rejected by men. In Christ, we are chosen because we have aligned with the chosen one. You are a chosen person. This morning, you might have thought, well, who am I to be chosen? What am I to be chosen? Here are some qualifications you need. Not if you're chosen, that means that you're not rejected, right? If, if, if you got this group of people, and I pick you out, and I say, I'm choosing you, you know what that means? That means that you're accepted, you're not rejected. That means that, that you're not overlooked. Oh, just one of the multitudes. No, it means that you're significant. I have a reason to choose you. It means that you're not too old. Well, well, I'm too old to be chosen by God. No, no, you're not too old. Oh, I'm too young to be chosen by God. No, you're not too young to be chosen by God. You're not too weak. Oh, well, I'm weak, I'm sick, I'm infirm. No, no, God chose you in the condition that you're in. You're not rejected more. You're not too ugly. That gives us hope, right? It gives me hope. Okay, no, good. Thank you, God. You chose me. In other words, what, what God, is, God, God sees differently than we see. God values things differently. You're not the wrong color, nationality, or ethnicity. You're chosen, church. Wait, you're not too poor, and you're not too rich. Church of Jesus Christ, those sitting in this pew, those who are there, 2,000 years ago, chosen because you have aligned yourself with the chosen one. You are chosen. You are a chosen people. You're not unqualified. You're not unqualified. Well, God, well, what can God do with me? I don't know anything. You're not unqualified. Nor are you disqualified because of whatever you've done in the past, whatever you have stumbled or struggled with or whatever it else, you're not disqualified from God choosing you. You can't say, well, I've done this, and God's going to say, no, I can't choose that person anymore. You're qualified. You're not too broken. No matter what has gone on with, it doesn't keep the grace of God and the mercy of God from you. You are not too broken. God is still ready to use you. You're not too dumb, ignorant, or stupid either. Isn't that great, church? I don't hear anybody saying amen to that. We all should say amen, you know, because, because it is true. You know, if we compare ourselves to other people, we think, well, I'm not smart enough. Well, 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 I don't know enough. Well, well, I'm just stupid. And God says, I take the foolish things of earth to fool the wise. Imagine what God, the glory, the praise, the honor that God would get when he takes a group of a gathered people in Colton. This is not the epicenter of the world. He takes a group of people, us, uses you to change the world, to impact the community, the, the neighborhood, the coasts. He uses us. You're not too far away to be chosen. You haven't wandered too far away. You, you, you're not too far away. You're not too lost. 
David says, where, where could I go to flee from you? If, if I go to the farthest ends of the earth, are you there? If I go to the depths of the sea, you're still there. If I go to the farthest east or west or north or south, where can I go to flee from God? I can't get away from God. You're never too far away. You are a chosen people. The second part of that, though, is, is you're a people, or a chosen people, a clan. You are a distinct and select group of people that God wants to use for a noble purpose today. God wants to use you as part of his clan, as part of his people, to give praise to him. Look at what happens. I found this passage in Rome in Revelation chapter 5, and it talks about a group of people who, who might not even speak the same language, a group of people who don't look alike, a group of people who aren't the same age. They're all gathered around and they're all giving praise. John writes in this vision that he has. He says, Then I saw the Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is John. And when John had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down in front of the Lamb. And they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God. Who did he purchase? The noble and the righteous? No. Every tribe and language, people from, the, from all the nations. He purchased all of us with his blood. You made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will rule on earth. That's us. We our chosen people. But look what else he adds there. This goes great with Peter's passage. He made them to be a kingdom and a priests to serve our God. And that's the second clause there in Peter's letter. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We're going to separate those words in a second because I just want you to know you are part of a royal priesthood. You are. You didn't think you were. You didn't come in thinking that you're this noble person. So I got a prop. Here's my my noble priesthood hat. I know. Every single one of us should have one of these, but, you know, we couldn't afford that. So so you are a royal priesthood. Look, you take the words royal, and and Peter does something. Right there, they're united, but, but the Old Testament had separated them. There used to just be two different things. There used to be royalty, and there used to be the priesthood. And the royalty and the priesthood were separated. And a priest couldn't do the same things as a, a royal king could do, and a king couldn't do the same thing as a priest could do. And so the Bible, the Old Testament, separates those two things. Royal. A person relationally connected to the king. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If you have a person... You are relationally connected to the king. Therefore, you are royalty. You belong to his kingdom. Not the kingdom of the world. You belong to the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the priests, they did not belong to the king. And God did that on purpose. I'm going to tell you the story of King Uzziah. King. Not a priest. He's a king. And and this king was a young king when he came into power. This is an Old Testament book of Chronicles. He was a young king, and and he came to power, and when he came to power, he did what was right in God's eyes. The things that he did, they were honorable, they were noble, and they were right. And therefore, God gave him success. 
And so this young man becomes a king, and he gains success, and he gains notoriety. Look, he defeated the Philistine war, and what would happen? The king would win. God was blessing him. He established a strong, and he established a powerful army, and so much so that his fame spread far and wide. And so here's this king, this noble king, who's doing right, got the blessings of God. Things are going well for him. You got the picture? Young man, young man leading the army, leading the charge. He's doing other things. He's rebuilding the walls. And so, so that he's starting to reestablish Jerusalem as a strong fortress in which you will be protected by a strong king with a strong army. And you're defeating the enemy outside. That sounds great, doesn't it? That's a great king to be part of. And all of a sudden, the king, he wants to put on a different hat. He wants to... And so the king does something. And we pick it up in verse 16. Uzziah, he, he became powerful. His pride led to his downfall. Look at that, church. Uzziah's pride. He had this great pride, this great army, this rebuilding of the wall, this community growing. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Remember, kings and priests, they're separate. The king can't do what the priest does. And Uzziah, he, he, he's proud, he's arrogant, and he's going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go approach God. I'm going to go into the place that I'm allowed to go because I'm the king. And as the king, I can do what I want to do. And in his powerful pride, he does what he's not allowed to do. Then Azariah, the priests, and 80 other courageous priests, they come to him and they confronted the king. Imagine the courage that it took for 81 people to come and confront the king. The king, he's sacrificing, he's, he's, he's lighting incense in the presence of God and the holies and, and the palace, he's, he's, I mean in the temple, he's there, he's doing what he shouldn't do. 80 priests, Josiah, I mean, Azariah, he probably drew the short stick. You go tell the king. No, I'm not going to go tell the king. You go tell the king. I'm not going to tell the king. Let's all go tell the king together. And he drew the short stick, and he has to approach. Nervous, anxious, but he has to do what is right. Look what the highlight says. Isaiah says, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. This, going from here to here, isn't right. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense, leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful. You will not be honored by God. And just earlier it said he was being honored. Just earlier it said he was doing good. He was being blessed. Now God is about ready to take that away. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, he became angry. And the king gets mad. And while the king was raging at the priests in the presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, <clears throat> leprosy breaks out on him. Not a good day for the priests. I mean, not a good day for the king. And Isaiah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him. Their eyes got bigger. Uh oh, something bad is happening. They got bigger and bigger, and then they took him out, and they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, and so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had inflicted him. The priests and the kings, they were not united. They couldn't do, the king couldn't do what the priests did, couldn't do what the kings did. And then Jesus came. Jesus came in the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus, Jesus became a king priest. He is our king priest, and we, as a result, can do 
and we are royal priesthood. See, a priest intercedes for God on behalf of the people. He speaks on the, to the people on behalf of God. We looked at that, right? That's what a priest does. A priest comes up and he, he intercedes. you got a request. you got something to do. And what do you do? You come to the priest. Hey, will you take this sacrifice? Will you take this offering? And, and will you take that and present it to God? And then the priest also teaches and trains and equips people. What does God have to say? That's this. A royal priest, you, you, and you, in the front and in the back, you, intercede with the authority of royalty. I liked that phrase, authority of royalty, to the king on behalf of the people. You're a king's kid, right? You get to go talk to the king anytime you want to. You have that royalty being part of his kingdom in you. You have the authority of royalty as a believer in Jesus Christ. You speak with the authority of royalty. Church, you digesting this? You're an important person today. You're not just an average, ordinary person. You're a king's kid. You get to speak with the authority of royalty. You get, to, you get to proclaim the words of your king. You get to share those words. And it's not that, that it's a mandate from some stranger. It's someone that you have a personal relationship that you get to share and you get to proclaim. You are a royal priest, church. And then you're a holy nation. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Real quick, like that just means that you're a citizen of a holy nation. Your citizenship in America is important. Your citizenship with God is huge. You're a citizen. What does it mean to be part of Moses says this. He's talking to the people of Israel, and, and he's about ready to proclaim what they should be. They should be this holy nation. At the beginning in chapter 19, I could give you the whole history of Exodus if you want it. 16, 17, well, we won't, but Moses says their purpose was to be a holy nation, yet they sinned. And because of that, he separates them, the priests. He separates them. And all of a sudden, you got these issues of the fact that they weren't who they were called to be. A nation set apart. You are called to be a people set apart by God. You're set apart. Our values aren't the same as the world's values, are they? The world's ways. We, we, we do something foolish and we give our tithes and our offerings to a church. And if you think about that materialistically, you go, well, I could use that money. I can use the money however I want. And, and yet, yet you do something foolish. You give, you do something foolish, and, and you pray. Sometimes you pray out loud and you talk to God. Sometimes you gather around with other people and you pray. Sometimes you do it in your mind, in your heart. You pray. The world thinks that's foolish. You are people set apart by God for his noble purpose of proclaiming who he is to people lost, empowered by his spirit. You are a nation, and then you are God's special possession. Special possession. I love the word that is used by the meaning of possession. So you are God's special possession. The word has about it, it means to acquire by purchase. We got that right. You, you buy something, get it by purpose, with the idea of preserving it, that which was purchased. In other words, it's not like... Some of us feel like we're a pair of socks in God's dresser drawer, right? Okay, and so, so what am I? I'm a pair of socks. I come in, he uses me, he wears me out, and he throws me out to the outside world. No, no, you have been purchased. You have been proclaimed for the idea of preserving you, 
keeping you so that he could be with you for all eternity. Hello? That's great. We, we thank you very much. We, we start to digest this. God purchased you not to, to use you for a bit of time and throw you out. That's the world thinking. He purchased you. He purchased everyone from Matthew in the back to Matt in the front. Oh, I like that. Two Matts. There you go. Everybody in, everybody in between. He purchased you to preserve you. The idea, there's another word picture here. I'm going to see if I can draw this. And, um, and so it's the idea of if you are here, and um, they, they, I got thumbs up, I got thumbs up, I got big feet here, okay. If you are here, and the idea of purchasing is also the circle, and you draw a circle around it, and he says, everything within that circle is mine. That's the idea of that word, is that you are preserved, and he says, you are mine. Nothing can get to you. The devil, the devil Peter will ride around, seeks to devour you, but, but you're enclosed, and you're preserved by God as a special person. Paul says that you are a masterpiece. If you're a masterpiece, if you're, you're this special thing, God has you on display, but he has you on display protecting, watching over you for eternity. This is, this, I tell you, church, if, if you can digest this and you can understand it and you really understand what God, and then the next couple of, next month and a half, as we walk through Peter and we look at the sufferings and we look at the challenges of, of the church having to live differently, we understand that because of who you are, because of what he's made for you. And, and how he's done it. And so you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why don't, why don't we do this so I can make sure that we're alive this morning. Why don't we read that verse together? You ready? One, two, three. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Okay, we're going to change it a little bit. And I want you to replace the word you to the word instead in the R to M. So I am a chosen person. Okay? You got to do some grammar instantly in your head. Okay? And that may be hard for some of you, but we know that everybody can do it. Are you ready? One, two, three. But I am a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That might be the first time some of you ever said that you're special to God. That might be the first time that you've ever realized in your life that you are uniquely special to God for you. He has called you to do that. But you've got a reason why he's done that, to declare his praise. You are royal, and as a result of that, you get to declare his praise. The other half of that verse says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let me, see how, let me see how intelligent we are this morning. Can we read the second half of that, replacing the you with the I? You ready? One, two, three. That I may declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness. And... Woohoo! You did it! All right. Forget the daylight savings time. We're good to go. This is excellent. Okay, so, so why? Why are you a chosen people that you may declare? Why are you a royal priesthood that you may nation that you may declare? Why are you God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who, who one time you were living in darkness, now you're living in light. The one time you may give praise to him. 
who called you, separated you, ignobled you for the purpose of giving him praise. Church, this is awesome. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were living far away from God, alienated, separated, God called you, God said, come. You heard his voice, you came. He adopted you, he welcomed you into his house. He said, put on this, put on this royal hat because you're one of my people. Put on this royal hat. You've got a responsibility, and the responsibility is to obey the things that I have, but to declare the praises of your king, your Lord, your Savior. This week, I'm going to give you one specific task. One specific task, but we're going to look at that in a second. Let's close with this. You know know who you are so that you can declare the praises of who he is. Know who you are. It's really important that you know. You can't declare the praises of what God has done for you unless you know what God has done for you. It's hard just to say, oh, praise the Lord, but, but this is why you need to praise the Lord. This is why God is good. So I'm going to ask you, since we're a smaller group this morning, I'm going to ask you just to name out character qualities of God that you are grateful for. And so if I could have a couple of brave people say, I am grateful for God's blank to me. Can, amen. His grace. Patience, excellent. Forgiveness, Forgiveness. love, hope, mercy. mercy. Awesome. Giving praise. A couple more. Peace. Peace, yay. Strength. Cecilia? Strength, yay. Man. Patricia, you got one? The healing, absolutely. Tom, you got one? Amen. For the wife. You know. God has given us great things to give praise for, from his grace and his mercy to his healing and the hope. Church, can we this week share stories of God and his hope and how he gave you hope to somebody? Whether or not they're a family member, whether or not they're a friend, or whether or not they're a neighbor, can you share this week the praises of why you have hope, the praises of why his mercy is abundant upon you, why, what he has done, that one thing. See, because in the old days, they were using refractors, and refractors got warped, they got blurry, but they changed it to mirrors. When they went from refractors to reflectors, they, the lens went from 40 inches to 70 feet and bigger across. Because all of a sudden, the light, instead of being, being a lens that light's coming through, it could be pushed up into a smaller lens, and they could see forever, basically. That's what we need to do. We need to reflect who God is so that people can see him bigger and closer and, and, and see things that they know as we are reflecting who God is instead of just refracting a small portion of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men, these women who gathered this morning. More, more in line, Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here, your presence that is powerful amongst us, the joy that you have given us, the hope that you have given us, the grace, the joy, the healing. Lord, thank you for working in our midst. We are so privileged to be part of your royalty, part of your family. 
part of your saving instrument into this world. Lord, the world, it's going sideways. The grace to share when we need to share, to be able to proclaim and give an honest answer, as Peter will say, give an account for what we have. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be your spokespeople and, and the light to shine through us and reflect off of us this week. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.